Please join with me in prayer. Father, it is, uh, it is just a, an enormous privilege that we would have you, our God, personally speak to us and speak to us as a community. And so again, Lord, we want to be those that you describe in Isaiah, those who tremble at your word, who are lowly in heart. And so we ask for that now, that, that you would help me to be faithful to your word and that you would help us together to hear your word so that more and more we would be the people you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our series in Matthew, and uh, last week we began the s looking together at the Sermon on the Mount with the Lord's Prayer, and the Sermon on the Mount really is Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom. It is his description of what his kingdom looks like, what is the way of those who belong to his kingdom. And this morning, as we kind of start with the very beginning, sometimes known as the Beatitudes, in fact, just the first half of the Beatitudes, we have... I think in these words of Jesus, something that is potentially threatening to us, where he calls us to a kind of emotional honesty and even vulnerability that isn't easy. And the reason I say that is because we, and I think our lives are designed to be pleasant. Um, all you have to do is just look around here and you can maybe even think about your own lives and think about how we have tried to construct our lives to feel generally safe and generally in control and generally happy or at least if we can't always get happy, at least free from as much suffering as possible. We want a life that's pleasant. And yet what does Jesus say here? We have these four Beatitudes. Beatitudes are called that way because they begin with the word blessed, which Beatitude is kind of a derivation of that. Although, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that blessed, I find, is not exactly the most helpful translation. It's, it's speaking about human flourishing. It's saying, this is what the good life looks like. This is the life that you want. And what does Jesus say is the life that we want? The good life belongs to those who are poor, who are meek, which feels out of control. The good life belongs to those who mourn and to those who hunger and thirst. The life that you want, Jesus says, is not the pleasant life. The life that you want is one where you are poor, and where you mourn. So to understand what Jesus is saying, I think it's probably helpful to back up for a moment and, and to recognize the context of what's going on with Israel, specifically the suffering and Israel's response to the suffering they endured. So, if, so it seems to me that when it comes to responding to suffering, there are kind of two different ways that people generally respond as a result when something really hard happens. Now, I know this is a simplification. There are a diverse ways that people deal with grief, and I'm not trying to oversimplify, but it seems like over time, there are kind of two different directions that people respond when they suffer. Sometimes when you go through grief or when someone goes through grief, it, it helps you to grow. Where you begin 
to be softened. You, you see things more honestly and more clearly. You start seeing others better. There is a growth in compassion and wisdom. Sometimes grief leads to growth, but sometimes people respond to grief with something that's not healthy, where, where the pain of suffering is just so unbearable that avoidance is chosen instead. Whether that avoidance is by anger because anger seems like a safer emotion and bitterness, or whether that avoidance is just through escape, through things that can take your mind off of the pain, or whether that avoidance is just through deciding that I'm gonna power through it and as long as I keep on working hard that I don't have to worry about what's going on. And those ways are almost never healthy because they are living away from the truth. And I bring that up because with Israel, we actually see these two divergent paths responding to suffering. If you were with us last year, you might remember in Isaiah how God's people, after repeatedly turning their backs on God, God disciplined them by giving them what they were looking for, by giving them life without him, at least a taste of it. And that meant internal division, that meant corruption, that meant breaking apart, but even more than that, it meant being brought down by their enemy. And so in the span of just a short while, their nation is destroyed, the temple is in ruins, and the people are brought to another land, and there is enormous amount of pain. It's, it's beyond our ability to imagine what they must have gone through. And as God's people experience this pain, we see these two divergent responses to suffering. There are some who seek really to avoid the significance of what's just happened. Some turn in bitterness and anger and just decide they want nothing to do with God. There are others who try to escape through, through I suppose you could call a form of materialism or other forms of idolatry where they can kind of look elsewhere to try to make themselves feel better. And there are some who just decide that the best way to handle this is to work harder and to just kind of act as if this wasn't the case and maybe they can work well enough to get God to do good things for them again. And it's not healthy. But there are others who respond differently. There are others who feel so broken by what's taken place that they come to a new awareness. They recognize their own spiritual poverty, their own failure, their own helplessness. And they also start grieving. They grieve as they remember the city that was. They grieve as they remember the promise of what that city was meant to be and what has happened. And they are brokenhearted. And in Isaiah, God, on one hand, warns those who have avoided the reality that he has shown them. But, but more significantly, he offers words of comfort to those who have been brought low. It culminates in Isaiah 61 where we see the Savior figure saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn and bring them joy. And for hundreds of years, as Israel grieves and feels the weight of what has happened, many are waiting to see these words come to fulfillment until Jesus steps onto the scene and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he is doing is he is proclaiming good news to the poor. 
This is why he begins, as we have just been told in chapter 4, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, and then in chapter 5, what does he say? He begins, blessed are the poor. This is good news to the poor. I am proclaiming comfort to those who have been brought down. And so in these four Beatitudes that we have been, uh, we've already read, we see two pairs. Um, Poor and meek are words that are often put together, so the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And, and those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst, two pairs that are kind of alternate with each other. And what I just like for us to do, because for many of us, we have heard these verses repeatedly, is just to sit with them and to actually feel the discomfort that I think they are meant to bring us. And I think they're making us uncomfortable because, well, let's just start with this. Who wants to feel poor? Who wants to be poor? Again, if we think about our lives, we avoid that feeling. I don't know what it's like to be poor. The closest that I've ever come is when we were in seminary, Jennifer had a part-time job and I was an intern and we were basically just living off of that income. And that meant that, uh, you know, anytime we would splurge for a $2 coffee, it was a big deal. We would only get the generic stuff at grocery stores. One ply toilet paper was all we could afford. I mean, I know that's too much information. And, and just like that was just the life we were. We weren't always sure how we could get rent. But here's the reality. We weren't, we weren't poor. I knew at any moment that if things got bad for us, we could ask our parents for help and they would help us. When I read people who speak about the experience of poverty, they, they speak of something that's deeper that becomes almost a kind of identity, a a feeling of poverty. Some of the stuff that I read, um, one person wrote, poverty is a feeling, an invisible but oppressive mantle you carry around your neck at all times. It's feeling beaten down every day. Another said, poverty is a constant state of insecurity. Poverty is exhaustion in every way. And yes, poverty is being hungry. When Jesus is talking about the poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit, he is talking not about just the external situation. He is talking about that that feeling that is being described, that feeling of inadequacy that is so deep it is exhausting, that that feeling of, of helplessness, of brokenness, of an awareness that the only thing you have to offer is a cry for help. And again, if we think about our lives, think about the way that we are careful with our bank accounts, think about the way that we are saving things up. Now, there's wisdom. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't do financial planning, but isn't a part of the reason because we want to avoid ever having to feel that way? And yet Jesus says, that thing that you are trying to avoid that's where the good life is to be found. And then he continues, and he says, blessed are the meek, which means really he is inviting us to another thing we don't want. We don't want to feel like we can be taken advantage of. And yet, what is meekness? Meekness, I should clarify, it's not weakness. It's not passivity. Meekness, as it appears in the Bible, is an acceptance of who we are as creatures of God and not seeking to be other than that. 
So, so meekness involves allowing God to be the one who controls things rather than trying to take control of ourselves, over ourselves. Meekness involves recognizing that we don't have the right to control others because all of us are alike under God and so not seeking to manipulate or overpower. Psalm 37 actually is one of the great passages that describes weakness. It says, be still, sorry, meekness, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. The evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, those who are meek, shall inherit the land. That's, that's meekness, allowing ourselves to remain creatures and letting God be the one who rules over things. And yet the problem is, we realize that even if we are seeking to be meek, not everyone buys into this idea of meekness. We, we know we have seen how people can use manipulation, deceit, anger to get what they want. We have seen people get the promotion that we would have loved to have gotten through means that we know we are not willing to do. We have seen people take advantage of others. We know what it's like to be hurt, and when we see these things, we want to hurt back. We want to fight fire with fire. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek. He calls us in that moment to something that feels powerless. And who wants that? And yet Jesus says, this is where the good life is to be found, to be poor in spirit and to be meek. Now, if that is not threatening enough, he also speaks about mourning. And if there's one thing that is clear, we don't want to be sad. I mean, we know just how hard grief can be. C.S. Lewis writes really compellingly after his wife dies. He says, grief feels like fear, perhaps more strictly like suspense or like waiting, just hanging about waiting for something to happen. It gives life a permanently provisional feeling. It doesn't seem worth starting anything. I can't settle down. I yawn. I fidget. I smoke too much. Up until this, I always had too little time. Now there is nothing but time. Almost pure, empty successiveness. And we know that about grief. Either because we've experienced it or we know those who have. We know that is not something that we want. And so we try to protect ourselves from grief. If we're parents, we try to make sure that our kids are safe at all costs. It also means sometimes we try to kind of keep that circle of love and vulnerability fairly small because we know the more that we care about, the more that we are going to be hurt about. I mean, haven't you found sometimes that you've heard or seen something that is just deeply sad and yet you have chosen to kind of almost shut yourself off from it because you just, you just don't want to have to feel the sadness of that thing? I wonder sometimes when we're seeing all of this hatred and attacking and arguing, if a lot of this is just people are too afraid to feel sad about things and so they go to anger instead. We, we try to avoid grieving. And yet Jesus says, you're mistaken. The good life of flourishing is found in those who mourn. 
Mourn over what? Well, that's where the second pair comes in, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the mourning, the longing to see righteousness. And to understand this, we need to actually spend a moment just thinking about what the Bible means, what Jesus means by righteousness. The simplest definition I've seen of righteousness is righteousness is when everything in the world works the way that God intended. When God's will is done. It has a communal level. The righteousness that God calls for involves justice, involves the strong caring for the weak, involves peace and harmony. And it also has an individual level. Righteousness involves truthfulness and integrity and, and at the very heart of things, love. And if we think about it for a moment, righteousness is what the world is crying out for. Every protest, every cry for justice, every frustration where we realize the world isn't how it should be, that we aren't how we should be, is a longing for righteousness. Uh, one of my favorite moments in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, is when Aslan is first introduced. And there's this one moment where Mr. Beaver talks to the kids and he explains Aslan. There's this rhyme, this prophecy that he, he quotes. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. What that's talking about is righteousness. And in some ways, in a way that this story reflects, God is promising that very thing when his Savior comes. In the very high point of Isaiah, near where I already quoted from 61, in the span of 20 verses, God repeatedly promises righteousness. Seven different times he says, and I will make you, my people, righteous. I will clothe you in the robe of righteousness. You will shine with righteousness. I will not rest into the world, sees the beauty of your righteousness, and sees my glory. There is this repeated promise for righteousness. And when Jesus speaks of those who mourn, and when he speaks of those who hunger and thirst, he is people, speaking of people who ache who ache to see this happen. He is speaking of people who do not shut their eyes at the pain of this world, which, if we are honest, is much easier to do. But when they see injustice, when they see corruption, when they see the vicious cycle of poverty, when they see the vulnerable taken advantage of, they grieve. When these people see the church and what it should be and what it isn't. Rather than just deciding to give up on the church, they hang in there, but they grieve. When people see themselves, rather than trying to pretend to be something they're not, they recognize their selfishness and, and pride and how they hurt others, and they grieve. And, and that grief is decidedly un comfortable, unpleasant. Complacency is easier. Apathy is easier. But mourning because this world isn't how it should be and we are not how it should be hurts. And yet Jesus says, this, this is the life that you want. 
This is what is good. This is the life of flourishing. You want a life of poverty in spirit and meekness. You want, Jesus says, a life of mourning and hungering and thirsting with frustration. Why? Why Why does Jesus say that this life, that we have done everything in our lives to avoid? Because it's true, right? Comfort, security, safety, that's what we want. And yet Jesus says, wrong, this is what you want. Why? Well, to begin with, Jesus wants, tells us that this is what we want just simply because it's true. We... we when you think about, I talked about how Israel responded to what happened to them, and there are some who responded in denial, some who, who tried to avoid it, and it wasn't healthy. And, and in the same way, it is an easy thing for you and me when we go through something that's hard, when we feel the anxiety and the uncertainty of this life. It is an easy thing to try to use our wealth as, as a form of protection, It's an easy thing when we feel the sadness of the moment, like right now, to just distract ourselves and not choose to think about it because it's too hard. It it is an easy thing, but it's a lie. And, And sometimes in moments, we realize deep down that it is. Sometimes in certain moments, if we open ourselves up to what God is doing, we are reminded of the simple truth that we are completely dependent upon God and in his hands without anything on our own that we can accomplish. We're reminded that this world is sinful and broken and that we are sinful and broken. It's in those moments that God is leading us into the truth. And that is the better way because it is always better to be in reality than in denial. But I want to suggest that, that Jesus is saying more than this is the right way because at least it is brutal honesty. He's actually saying when he's saying these things that you and I do not need to be afraid. When Jesus says these words, he says, it is okay that you are utterly helpless. It is okay that you can't fix yourself, let alone the world around you. It is okay that you keep on finding yourself sad and frustrated and that you know you're supposed to be fine, but you can never be fine with how things are. It is okay. You do not need to be afraid to go there because it is for this reason that I have come. Because Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to you who are poor. To to bind up you who are brokenhearted. To comfort you who mourn and give you joy. That is why I have come. And that's not only something that Jesus says, it is what Jesus does. Jesus gives himself for us on the cross. He goes lower than we've ever gone to bring us up. He takes on our sin to give us his righteousness. 
He who had everything becomes poor so that in him we would become rich. Jesus says it is better. The good life belongs to those who are poor and those who are mourned because Jesus belongs to those who are poor and those who mourn. And in fact, it is only when we come to that point that we are able to experience that reality. As long as we hold on to those things that we think make us safe, those things that protect us from the things we're afraid of, those things that distract us from the hurt that we don't want to experience, as long as we hold tightly onto that, we will never have hands that are open to experience what Jesus has for us. We will never be able to experience the kingdom that he desires to give us. So Jesus says to you and to me, you do not need to be afraid. Blessed are the poor in spirit, are the meek. Blessed are you who mourn, you who hunger and thirst, for in me you will be comforted and you will experience my kingdom. Would you please pray with me? Father, it is, um, it is not something that we can do on our own because we are so often too afraid to be honest about our failings and our inadequacy and the painfulness of this world. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would enable us to go there, that you would open our hearts to what is true. And even more than that, that you would reassure us of the reality that Jesus has come for us and that in him we have all of the hope in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.